0: welcome to secrets the recent winner of the black podcasters listeners love award where kp and pr share their knowledge and experiences in corporate america to advocate for creating generational wealth for the village here's how our listener describes secrets Keith and Ricky talk about everything in the workplace and beyond that you've always wanted to know about, but never really felt comfortable asking. From microaggressions to being your authentic self to systemic racism, KP and PR provides some of the most excellent career advice on the market. And in season six, these brothers will continue coming with hot fire on how to stay on code in trying to reach and exceed your career aspirations, how to use your power and privilege for good, and how to survive the same old corporate performative acts. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, want to challenge you, as well as corporate America, to be better and do better. So fill up those cups and welcome to season six. Hey,
1: everybody, welcome to Secrets KP. My brother, what is going on in your world? What is on your mind? Hey, I'm
2: doing pretty good over here, PR. And season six has really been cracking already. You know, our theme about getting on code is really resonating with people right now. And I was just reflecting and way back in season one, if you remember that far back when we were (laughs) doing episode 16, you know, we talked about educational redlining, right? Mm -hmm. And just all the impacts and that inequitable education systems have on our people and how that impacts generational wealth for people of color. And I started to think about how our our parents and in fact, like me and you, even to, to some extent, You know, we were like some of the first people to start to tear down some of these walls of segregation that was really created around our education system. But still, 60 years later, we are still dealing with this crap. You know, it feels like in so many ways we're we just on the treadmill. We on that little rat reel, just running, 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 and getting nowhere. You know? Yeah, what I'm yeah. You about? know,
1: like I, yeah, like my uh, grandfather used to say, "Man, you over there. We over there hustling backwards." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that's exactly what it feels like sometimes. But KP, I mean, what you're saying, man, is just so true. Like all of these movements across the country to cancel history, fund school choice, and infringe on freedom of speech. It's like traumatized communities everywhere, right? Yeah. I mean, it's 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 getting to the point where we just really don't know which way is up when it comes to that.
2: No, it's true. And you know, and we've been talking about getting on code and being on code is really being the counterforce mm-hmm. to all of the to all of those movements that you just described, so that our people can actually have full access and truthful education at the right. end of the day, because if we don't have the facts, ain't no way we're gonna be able to grow. So, and so today we are lucky, trust me, we are lucky to have Dr. Gene Harris join us to talk about our public education system and how we can advocate for change in that structure. Right. And Dr. Harris has had a long, prestigious career in education and retired after serving 12 years as the superintendent of the Columbus, Ohio school system. And this is gonna be a great conversation today, PR. I am like super excited. You know how much I love to talk about education. I work in education now. So I'm I'm, like lit up, right? (laughs) So why don't you go ahead and put
1: a little shine on Dr. Harris and welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm gonna put a little respect on her name, okay? (laughs) So Dr. Jean Harris was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. She has a BA degree in English from the University of Notre Dame and a Master of Arts degree in Educational Administration from The Ohio State University and a PhD in Education from Ohio University. Dr. Harris began her career as an English teacher for the Columbus City uh, schools. And in 1980, she was appointed assistant principal. Six years later, Harris was named a principal in the Columbus City school districts. She was appointed supervisor of principals for the Columbus City Schools before being hired as an assistant superintendent of curriculum. So again, we're talking about the the maturation. you know, here we always talk about these purple unicorns. We literally have one right here in terms of all of the accolades here. Harris then became the 19th superintendent of the Columbus City Schools in 2001, Ohio's largest district serving more than 51,000 students in 118 schools and over 7,700 employees. That was a big job, you know, right there. Okay. That wasn't no small job. Okay. (laughs) And under her uh, tenure as superintendent, U.S. News and World Report ranked 12 of the district's high school. They ranked 12 of the district's high schools among the nation's best in 2010's America's Best High School Report. So that, again, is a huge deal, and that all happened under her leadership. So, Dr. Jean Harris, welcome to Secrets, my sister. Did I put some stank on
3: it? Listen, I you know I, I like it when people say they're gonna put some respect with a K at the end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I like that. I like that. Thank you very much. It's great to be here with you guys.
2: Yeah. And wel- welcome to the show. We really appreciate you taking some time and being with us today.
3: Thank you. Hey, and so Secrets Village, look, in this episode,
1: we are going to really hit some topics today. We will talk with Dr. Harris about her story and her career journey, as we always do with our guests. We'll also get her perspective about getting on code in the education system. We will provide some receipts on disparities in public education. And we'll close out with the double dose of secrets from Dr. Harris on how you can advocate for change in uh, your public school system and how educational and corporate leaders can use their power and privilege for good in support of public education. So, Dr. Harris, we're going to get started here. Keith, why don't you kick it off with the first question for her?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, Dr. Harris, we li- always like to start our conversations by letting our secret listeners kind of get under the hood a little bit and understand who they're really talking to. I mean, Ricky did the formal, you know, respect, but we're going to give you a little time to talk about yourself. So why don't you just take a moment and give our listeners an understanding of who you are, what was your upbringing like, your background, your career journey, so we get a little flavor for who you are.
3: Well, again, I want to say to both of you, thank you so much for inviting me. I feel very humbled to be here. And I love talking about education, our people, how we can do better. And, I, and I, I like the opportunity for reflection for myself. So just a little bit about me. I, it's, it's very interesting and it's very unusual for people to be raised and educated in the same city where you go on to do something like become superintendent of Columbus City Schools. So I actually attended Columbus Schools, graduated from Lynn McKinley High School, hated it when people used to call, talk about inner city schools. I really don't like that term. You know, it was, it is an urban school, graduated from there, and as you said, went on to to Notre Dame. But I grew up in a family of five, my mother, my father, my sister, my brother, And one interesting thing I just want to share with you guys is that we lived in a house when I was growing up in elementary school with my grandparents. So my mother, my father, my sister, my brother, my grandparents, my uncle, Kenneth, and my aunt, Bobby, and my uncle, Bill, we all lived in that house. In second grade, my mom, you know, announced to us, my parents announced to us that they had bought a house. And they said, I put my hands on my hips and said, we've got a house what what are we doing why are we moving what's this all about so extended family has always been very very important to me i had no idea that we were in poverty we weren't PO poor poor like that because we always had food. My parents went to work. You know, my father always worked. We and we were rich and a lot of love and other kinds of things. My brother was the first to go to college. He got a degree from Ohio State, and and I didn't even know what that meant. He's like five five and a half years older than me, but because he was doing it, I decided I needed to do it. Whatever this college thing was, I was going to do it because Butch did it, and you know, and he was kind of my hero. So. That was my upbringing. Uh, I was brought up in the church. Um, Still a very strong member of the church and a very strong believer. And I just think that my values were built in that extended family that that I've talked about. So, Doctor
1: Harris, I mean, your story just just it, it it's amazing to me. You know, especially when you think about the the rarity of being in a community and then serving as a leader, you know, there and yeah. a servant leader, you know, at that, like you literally are like a legend, you know, in them streets, girl. Come on, <laughs> You literally Come like a that. legend in them streets, right? <laughs> but 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 I remember us having a conversation. I'm gonna ask you another question later. So I'm, i I apologize uh in advance. But you 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 brought up uh going to uh you know to college and, and whatnot and you and you mentioned being like one of the first you know yeah. to do something would you like to maybe explain that to us because that is like a really big deal like your career has been full of taking chances and betting on yourself and and whatnot so maybe talk about that one really quick if you can
3: yeah i will um so my high school as i said was an urban high school majority black my freshman year of college went to ohio state but in my sophomore year, uh, the University of Notre Dame started admitting women. It had been an all-male institution. I mean, and this was a big deal. It was like at that time, I think Yale and Harvard and Princeton, and some of the others were, had also been all-male institutions. So to admit women was a big deal. So in 1972, the fall of my sophomore year, they admitted women. And I was one of the first Black women to be undergraduate, Black women to be admitted there. There were eight of us on campus my first year, 1972. There were eight Black women. And we kind of clung together because it was, you know, you didn't have nowhere to get your hair done. I mean, (laughs) there were just a lot of things that were problematic for you. But, you know, and I spent some time... Initially thinking in when I'm sitting in the classroom, am I supposed to be here? And one one of the things that happened to me is in my dorm, I met a young woman by the name of Betsy Short, and I'll just say her name was Betsy Short. And we were talking about our family lives and all of that. And you know, I was very proud of mine. I still am very proud of it. But when she said that her father owned the Texas Rangers. I knew that I was, which was a, which was a, a sports team. I knew I was at a whole different level there. <laughs> <laughs> I figured out for some reason I was there, God had put me there. And so I just took the attitude that I belong. Okay. I belong here. I'm here. I belong here. And and I'm going to make this work.
1: No, nah, that, that, that's amazing. I mean, that story is just, just amazing. I'm always in awe when people are the first but it also makes me think like in corporate America, when you go into an environment, and there aren't very many of us, you know, yeah. and, and us could be whatever, you know, yeah. it is at the end of the day. And just having simple conversations about where to get your hair done or where to go eat, you know, that right. psychological safety doesn't exist. So mm-hmm. 1972 wasn't a long time ago. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like and right. you, again, as a trailblazer, as a Black woman, you know, we talk about, we always spend so much time talking about what the, uh, a sister has to go through mm-hmm. just to kind of be able to compete. And you were able mm-hmm. to, to to do that. So, again, I I just wanted to to bring that up, you know, with that uh, first question there, because I do think that's just a huge deal and something that I really didn't want us to skate over.
3: And I, and I will say, Ricky, that it really finally came to me that while I was among the first, I did not want to be. The last. Yeah. And so I knew that I had to do well. Mm-hmm. You know, I found myself on the dean's list a couple of times. So I was there listening to me say, I found myself. No, I didn't find myself. I worked myself. Yeah, exactly. You are in no strikes. List. But I just knew just, just from things that I heard my parents say and, you know, how I needed to carry myself. I knew that I needed to perform so that I was not the last. Mm hmm. And that nobody regretted the fact that we were on campus. In fact, yeah. that they cherished it, that they knew that they needed us. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's huge. That's huge.
1: That is, that's, that's big.
2: And just curious, like from that journey from, from Notre Dame and, and, uh, and getting your master's, what led you into the field of education? Because we we know that that's a really thankless job to really educate our kids, and and it ain't the greatest pay in the industry. We get that <laughs> all the time, right? <laughs> so,
1: it's necessary. It's necessary. Absolutely necessary. necessary. Like you said, mm-hmm.
2: I'll tell you, well, teachers do not get paid well. So, mm-mm.
3: and all of us are here. All three of us are here because of some teachers. Yes, mm-hmm. that's exactly right. Did, you know at various levels who who did a great job and for me um <laughs> it might sound cliche but it's really true i knew i wanted to be a teacher from a little girl my i am the youngest in my family my mother used to tell this story all the time she said that school my, my brother and my sister are, are 4 and 5 years older than me and that school would be played like out out on the front step and i was always the teacher they uh-huh. were they were older but I was always the teacher and I was always running things. But I just I had some, I had, I had some amazing teachers in my elementary years. I went to an all black elementary school, Garfield Elementary School. In fact, my elementary principal was at the press conference when I was named superintendent of Columbus City Schools. We wow. invited him there. The the school that I went to had become a part of the Martin Luther, it was closed as a school and had become a part of the Martin Luther King Center in Columbus. And we invited him to be there. But I had some powerful images of mm-hmm. African American people who were my teachers and principals. And I think it was because of their inspiration that I decided that I wanted to be a teacher, an educator, and I never veered from that. Never, ever.
1: Did. Yeah.
2: And I know you had a successful journey along the way. Did you always, did you ever feel like you had to be twice as good to kind of be in this field and the, and to be able to move up the, the career ladder in, in your field? Uh,
3: yes. <laughs> and in fact, that was something that was told to me in my home. You know, my parents, my parents were not college graduates. My father was not even a high school graduate. You would never have known that to meet him. He was well read. He was well spoken, you know, and my mother was just the force, as most of our mothers are. She she was just the force. But I was always told that and I believed it. And so I worked like that. I just like I said before, I knew that whatever I did, I did not want to be the last person to Mm. occupy that seat, whatever it was. And as a teacher and as a principal, I just wanted to give the best that I possibly could to the young people because that had been my experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't get to Notre Dame on my own. I didn't get to go- N- Notre Dame because people ignored me. You know, all while I was in school, I was given amazing opportunities, even though I was in you know low income schools. I was given amazing opportunities to do well, and, and I wanted to do, to pay it forward. I wanted to do that again, and. Uh, and I pray that I've been successful in doing that. No, absolutely. Look, Keith and I, you know, we
1: speak regularly about some of the unspoken challenges that we faced in corporate America, right? And this mm-hmm. is some of that stuff that makes you think you crazy, you know, uh, sometimes here, you know, with respect to microaggressions, and in some case, macroaggressions, and also like that, those toxic relationships. I mean, that stuff has a real serious impact, you know, on you. You know, I know we've done it in our personal lives at some point, but at work, you know, that that can really uh, take its toll on you. I'm sure you had your moments, (laughs) you know, as a black woman in the educational sector, you know, with some of these uh, uh, things as well. Can you speak to us about some of the challenges that you've had in your career that fall within these categories, so to speak? Okay, you're
3: going to have to stop me. (laughs) We got you. We got you. (laughs) You're going to, have to, you're going to have to say, okay, Gene, that's enough. <laughs> um, you know, one of the first ones, I mean, it wasn't a first one, but one of the ones that that sticks out is I applied for the position as superintendent in Columbus City twice. And on the second time I got it, the first time I didn't. You know, a lot of people walk away from that. But I will tell you, on the first time, that I applied, one of the people who was in the interview process came to me and said that it was said, you know, we really like her. We've known Jean and we, you know, we know how well she can do, but just why, why does she have to wear her hair so short? Oh, goodness. Oh, I goodness. mean, I don't, I don't, <laughs> you know, my hair is not going to do one bit of the work. None. <laughs> None. i'm Right, right, my exactly. Is not gonna, and and the reality is that I have worn my hair naturally for a much longer period of time than many black women even than well before the time that black women really embraced their natural mm-hmm. hair. Because we were beaten down about hair, you know, yeah. about, you know, all and I understand mm-hmm. that I, I'm not I'm not criticizing my sisters at all. But this was always comfortable for me. You know, I wore a larger fro. I've worn it close. I've worn it jerry curled. I've worn it, you Mm -hmm. know, we've all been permed. We've all been. Mm -hmm. So hair has Mm -hmm. always, it's a journey. It's been a journey for us. But that was actually said by a white woman in the interview process, why she got to wear her hair so short. And it's so funny that when the, when I didn't get that job, they hired a woman that had a huge fro. So, I mean, her issue, there was something about close hair, you know, for, I, I don't know. I'm not saying that right. I didn't get, but the fact that that would even be brought up, in, brought up in the first place is totally irrelevant. Yes. It's yeah. totally and completely irrelevant. I, when, when I was superintendent, there were some, uh, white business leaders in the community who were concerned about the number of African-American senior leaders that I was hiring and actually sent someone to ask me, couldn't I, you know, tone that down a little bit? And, you know, my response was, I'm looking for the best people to fill these positions. And, you know, when in corporate America, they're looking for the best people to fill the positions nobody's asking them to hire fewer white men yep. they're, not, they're just not no, they it. it they're just not doing that and then just a third one that I'll bring up because there're many more is that I was I was told that my and when, when I when I got the job the graduation rate was like around 40% And that was completely unacceptable to me. And so I called it out for what it was and said that we were going to have a goal that by 2012, I had no idea if I'd still be there. I was hired in 2001. By 2012, we were going to have a 90 percent graduation rate. That that, that's what our goal was going to be. We change our curriculum. We, you know, it had we had to have changes throughout the system to get there. And people talked about it. Mm -hmm. I was told that that goal was too ambitious and that I talked too much about kids going to college. And so I just kept right on with my goal being too ambitious, <laughs> went on about talking about kids going to college for a while. In Columbus, we had the most Gates Millennium Scholars of any school district in the state. I mean, so these were kids who, Gates was paying for them to go to college in the STEM areas and they would pay everything. They, their room and board, their tuition, their transportation to school, their everything. They would pay these kids at nothing to worry about. We had the most Gates Millennium Scholars and they were minority kids. I mean, he was looking for black kids to go into the STEM fields. And and but yet I was told I'm talking too much about kids going to college, all of that. When I left Columbus City Schools, we didn't we hadn't made the 90% graduation rate. But when I retired in 2013, we were in the 80s. Mm-hmm. so i'm i'm not thinking that that we were a failure at all i mean we were going from 40 percent of our kids graduating from high school and being able to go on and and do whatever they want to do whether it's college or career or career or whatever it was to 80 percent of our students mm-hmm. to do that so no that that,
1: that that that's huge i mean and it in the thing that like really irks me you know about some of those those conversations right it it takes you away f- from doing things that are impactful. Right. You know, like I've been in scenarios when it's like Ricky talks too much about uh, gender or right. ethnic diversity representation. You mm-hmm. know, but we've seen the statistics that show that that talent is out there, but we're just not doing enough. Right. And then when you actually make and, and see, and I get it at the end of the day. That means someone has to get off their ass and do something, right? That means you have to hold somebody accountable. Yes. So I absolutely get it. So when we have folks like me, you, Keith, and some of the other uh, individuals in our secrets village that 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 are you know fighting for for those uh, inequities, you know, to be right sized, when we have those those types of conversations, we're not very popular, right? You know, sometimes.
3: Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> no, they want you to talk softer. You know, don't be so ambitious. Mm -hmm. And the other thing we have to wonder is nobody's telling anybody in any suburban district not to have a 90 to 100% graduation rate. And nobody's telling them not to send their kids to college. Why would I be told that I'm talking about college too much? I have no, listen, I got a plumber coming Monday. And it's going to cost me a whole bunch of money. I'll have any problem with our kids deciding that they want to go into career and technical fields. Mm-hmm. But my thing was, but you need to do both. You need to prepare yourself for additional learning. Because you're going to have to do some more learning, even if you are a plumber or an electrician. You are going to have to do some additional learning. So why not give everybody that college prep curriculum where they are learning how to learn and they are learning some higher level math and they can write and they can read? Okay, why not do that for everybody? I I just didn't see where there was the problem Mm -hmm. at all. Um, And and, uh, because I want our kids to have choices. That was my goal, that they would have choices. Not that anybody would pigeonhole them into any particular pathway, but that they would decide, they and their parents, and with the help of the community, the help of their teachers would decide what their pathway was going to be.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. This is great. I mean, these are some tremendous, like, triumphant, you know, moments in your career. So I definitely appreciate that sure and i wanted to talk a
2: little bit about just the system i mean you've been talking about it right now and some of the things this whole rat wheel thing i mean what is going on right now i mean you have all these legislatures like passing all of this anti-black anti-lgbtq anti-everything if it ain't you know like all white and waspy and you know like just trying to like pull us back um and it just feels like we're we're kind of almost sliding back into like de facto Jim Crow, de facto segregation. What what are your thoughts about what's going on out here with the public education system right now?
3: Well, that last piece that you just said, we just can't let it happen. We can't ourselves be pulled back. We can't let our children be pulled back. We can't let our community uh, be pulled back. So our voices, I mean, there's just a variety of things that we need to, to do, you know, from our individual mentoring and working with people all the way up to speaking before legislative bodies and demonstrating in the streets. We, all of those strategies need to happen. I think what's happening, Keith, is that The powerful have looked around and really seen and understood even better than we, the browning of America. Say it. (laughs) Say it. That's exactly what's happening. They have seen the browning of America. They knew it was coming before we did. Demographers were talking about this in the 70s and 80s about how our population Mm -hmm. was going to change. And then, oh, my God, not only did Barack Obama get elected once, but when they spent the four years of his first term strategizing on how to make sure that he did not get reelected. Oh, my God, he got reelected again. And so what does that mean for young girls and boys in Columbus City schools Or they're thinking I can do that? And I can do everything that leads up to that. And I'm telling you, the powers that be are now, I mean, it's very systematic, you know, from the judge, from the fact that they would support, what, what number is he, 45, the fact that they would support 45, that they would support him so that we could get these conservative judges on the court's. I mean, that's what what they wanted so that they could begin to do or continue to do some of the things that are going on in state legislatures and what's going on in Congress. I mean, I I maybe I'm looking at it too simplistically, but I think it really has to do with the browning of America. But what what do we need to do? We need to call it out like I just did. We need to call it out for what it is. And then in our places in the sun, we need to... Speak to these changes. We need, uh, listen, I'm doing something simple. We're doing, um, I was asked to start a book club at our church. We've never had a book club at church. It's fine. I told my committee, I said, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to read a lot of these books that are most challenged in these states. Because Mm -hmm. if you get the mothers and the mamas and the women upset, we will do some things. We will go to the state legislature. We will go to the street. We will be at school board meetings. I mean, that's what's in my mind. It might seem like just a little teeny tiny thing. Mm -mm. Y'all understand that they want to take To Kill a Mockingbird out of your kid's school library. I mean, books that you have read, books that have inspired you over time, that they don't want your kids to read about Malcolm X. They don't want him to know. They don't, you know, they okay with you you reading about Martin, but they they don't want you to you don't they don't want your kids to read everything about Martin because Martin started doing some really radical stuff that mm-hmm. you know and and so I'm just saying that we've got to stop waiting for Martin to come and rescue us. We got to rescue ourselves. I mean, we got we've got to we got to lead ourselves and we've got to take advantage of every opportunity that we have. Uh, to call it out and to turn it around, and we've got to not be scared. We've got yeah. to not be scared. I'm sorry, I'm talking so long. No,
1: girl, no, uh, uh, you, you 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 preach to the choir. We again, you're validating <laughs> the things that we already knew. There's a reason why we got you on this show. Dr. <laughs> right. Right? There's a That's reason. Right. <laughs> but we also know, in talking with you earlier, that you give back to the community and mentor lots of people. Like we've been talking about this. You just gave us some very good examples. You're obviously on code all day every day, okay? (laughs) Why is it important to you to be that type of person? Because we certainly know a lot of people who get in uh, important positions and then they forget about where they come from, you know, so to speak. They kind of fall into that, let me just keep my job, so to speak. Let me Mm -hmm. not put my credibility on the line to help other people knowing that, to your point, they got some help along the way. You know, also, why is it
3: important for you not to be that type of individual? Well, you know, as I said before, well, I didn't say this before, but I'll say it now. I'm not, I am I, just I just had my 70th birthday in April and it, it's real clear to me that I'm not going to be here forever. Mm-hmm. And so we need to develop this kind of thinking among the young people that are coming behind us. And while I am mentoring, I mean, I'm, I mentor high school kids. I, I helped a young lady. She was so smart. This this just warmed my heart, though. And it's one of the reasons I do. it. Our kids are so amazing to me. She is a, a 10th grader, an honor student. She's in advanced placement classes, obviously doing well, obviously doing in a suburban school. But she sought me out because... She wanted me to tutor her in writing. And so I got her first piece of writing and I thought, uh, I don't need to be here, but she wants to make sure she's not, she's not satisfied with good enough. She wants to be excellent. So, Mm -hmm. so, so why wouldn't I want to be involved with a young person like that? I mean, it, it, it helps me. I mean, because it keeps me relevant and it keeps me from uh being at Macy's and Saks and stuff you know when I shouldn't be but um but it, you know so it's it's mutual it helps me it helps her but but prayerfully out of that experience she will be this kind of person also mm-hmm. that she will be the person There are also young administrators and teachers that call me for advice. I spent a long time on the phone with a young woman last night who is having some challenges. Uh, She is a, a leader in a school district and she's having some challenges. I have friends who are now superintendents that you know I provide whatever support that I can I just think it's important because this is I grew up in a community like that where people were helping people all the time my parents had people my grandparents had people living in their home who had come up from the south and they needed a hand up you know I told you all those people that were living in our house but we had other people who were coming to stay too and I just think that we need to not lose that in, in our community. I mean, we need to be reaching back and pulling forward as many people as we possibly can.
2: No, thank you on that. And we, Ricky and I talk a lot, you know, part of being on code is this playing it forward, like you're saying, you giving it back. That is one of the key elements of being on code because this whole myth around bootstrapping, and I did it on my own, that is such
3: BS at the end of the day. Ain't hey, nobody. It, it's the biggest lie that was ever told. Biggest it, one. It's the biggest lie that, that was ever told. And and our people in our community need to not latch on to that because we are where we are because we helped each other. Think of the Underground Railroad. What is that? Yep. What is that? <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Think of Harriet Tubman going back and getting people over and over again. What is that? That's us Reach. Harriet could have gotten to freedom and said, "Later for y'all, y'all have to get it on your own." Come on, mm-hmm. come on. So, so true. So, I get true. passionate about this stuff. Yes, no, it's good. I yeah, love, love but,
0: it. but
1: you're supposed to be, but you're supposed oh, to be, because at the end of the day, if we don't do it, like we've we've seen, we we've seen throughout history, if we don't do it, it doesn't happen. That's right.
2: Ain't nobody <laughs> gonna do it for us. We already know that. We already know that. And one final question. I mean, you you've had a storied a storied career. <laughs> you know, you're on history makers. You you know, you've been lots of write ups. Uh, you know about your about your tenure as superintendent. How how did you find your voice as a leader? And what advice would you give back to your younger self as you kind of reflect? You know, on your career.
3: Yeah, you know, that's a tough one. It's even a tough one as I reflect on it. One of the things, uh, one of the pieces of advice I would give my younger voice is see your power and influence earlier. As as I look back on it, I had mentors who were showing me that I was a powerful person, you know, even as a young person, because they would give me opportunities to, to do things. I think one of the pieces of advice that I would give my younger self is don't be afraid, you know, mm-hmm. because anything that's worth having is worth losing so the fact that I might lose a job or I might lose position or I might lose listen over doing the right thing is something that that we've got to that we've got to understand is a reality in our lives it, it just is and so if we get into position, and then just hang on to it and just hang on to that money. I mean, I, I would say to them, you know, do your money right, because at any point your life could change. So mm-hmm. make sure your money is all right. Don't don't be in Macy's all the time and <laughs> places where I like to be, you know, you know, save some of that money, especially if you are going to lead. And if you're going to be on the cutting edge, if you're going to do something. I mean, telling white people. That you were going to lead a district of majority black kids from having a 40 percent graduation rate to having an 80 percent graduation rate. That was risky. And I'll tell you why it was risky. It was risky because, one, they didn't think that it could be done. And number two, it wasn't their idea. Mm -hmm. And if if it had been their idea, if they had come to me and said, "Gene, you need to get this graduation rate to from blank to blank then it would have been okay. But because it wasn't their uh, idea and because Black kids were then feeling powerful about themselves, I mean, I'll tell you, Keith and Ricky, I have uh, parents and kids come up to me all the time because I'm still in the community. I'm still in the community. I'm still in in restaurants. I've told you several times I'm still at Macy's. Um, You know, I'm, I'm, I'm still there. I'm still around. I'm still at church. I'm still in going to community affairs and all that. I've had I continue. My husband would tell you we can't go anywhere without this happening with folks saying, I just need to give you an update on my kid. You took a Mm -hmm. picture with him when he was in the sixth grade. He is now out of college. He is in medical school. He's doing I mean, whatever it might be. Don't be afraid to use your power. Don't be. Don't be afraid to use your power for some good. And I just, I'm I'm that woman who believes that God's going to take care of you regardless. If you're doing the right thing and you're trying to do the right thing for people, God's got your back. He's got your back. So quit being scared, you know, move quicker. And I, I will say to myself in my own reflection, I mean, even though we did some amazing, I have to say, because I had a great team. We did some, some really powerful things. There's some things I just wish I had moved quicker on and faster, mm-hmm. and you know, not been hesitant on them. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, you absolutely, you know, answered the question. That's some great advice for uh, younger Dr. Gene Harris there. <laughs> but I think something that uh, that that our listeners can definitely you know take from and, and continue to challenge themselves. Mm-hmm. But look, this is the part of the show Secrets Village where we start to kind of go into the receipts, right? Because I know you all think that we put so much on it, you know, we're making some of these things up that we've been through. Well, look, the receipts don't lie, you know, here, right? So today we're going to summarize for us, we're we're going to provide some receipts on the disparities in public education and why it's important to be on code if we want to build generational wealth. So Keith, hit us with receipt number one.
2: Yeah. So according to a study in, uh, in 2020 by Stanford University, the racial achievement gaps have narrowed in many states. However, in almost all of the country's 100 largest school districts, there's still a big achievement gap between white and black students at the end of the day. In fact, it says the scores actually represent gaps in educational opportunity, which can be traced back all the way to the child's early childhood experiences. Which is why we talk about things like Head Start and these other programs that are so important at the early stages of a kid's life, right? And these experiences are formed at home, in childcare, in preschool, and in the community. Yeah. Again, if our communities aren't strong, it's hard for these kids to have opportunities. And all of that provides opportunities um, to develop social, emotional as well as academic capacity at the end of the day. And we already know this, but higher income families are more likely to be able to provide these opportunities to their children. So a family's social economic resources are strongly related to educational outcomes at the end of the day. yep. And we've seen this time and time again. Other factors such as patterns of residential and school segregation and a state's educational and social policies could also have a role in the size of achievement gaps. And discipline plays a role too. According to another Stanford story, it linked the achievement gap between Black and white students to the fact that the former Black students are punished more harshly for similar misbehavior, for example, being suspended from school, much more so than the latter. All of these things from the very beginning stages impact the educational outcomes, which then impact generational wealth. Yeah,
1: which which also impacts psychologically. You know, uh, here also. Right. Because we're teaching kids at a very young age, stay in your place. Right. Like we're telling them the rules don't necessarily apply to me, but they definitely apply to you. (laughs) You know, like we've seen
3: this over and over again. But, you know, those receipts don't have to stay that way. That's right. They they, don't. Absolutely. They they really don't. And so when our people are hearing people in their community say, we're going to put this ballot on the this levy on the issue and we want to increase the number of preschool classrooms in in our schools. Vote for that. Vote for that based on what what you have just said. We know that quality early childhood programs can Mm -hmm. change the trajectory of a kid's life. Absolutely. Don't be saying I'm retired. I'm on a fixed income. You were always on a fixed income. It was fixed until your boss said that you got a raise. So it was always (laughs) fixed. And a lot of times he he didn't give you no raise. So you were still on that fixed income. So even when you are where I am, if you hear about some of these things that will improve the lives of our kids, Support them. Mm-hmm. A- absolutely. I appreciate that feedback. Look, receipt number
1: two, the study that you mentioned above, Keith, was released as COVID was just getting started. You know, uh, also according to a recent McKinsey study, school shutdowns forced by COVID-19 exacerbated the existing achievement gap. So it was already some issues, and when c- COVID hit, they got wider. Okay. The consultancy says the resulting learning uh losses greater for low-income Black and Hispanic students could have long-term effects on the economic well-being of the affected children. Black and Hispanic families are less likely to have speed internet at home, making uh, distance learning extremely difficult, and students living in low income neighborhoods are less likely to have uh, had decent homeschooling. Look, according to the uh, Economic uh, Policy Institute, this information is where we got this from. Earlier in the pandemic, it said coronavirus would explode achievement gaps, suggesting it could expand by the equivalent of another half year of schooling. Like, at the end of the day, Keith, you and I serve on boards and have done work where we tried to get laptops and, you know, iPads for kids so they could, you know, be able to do that work, you know, period, you know, let alone during COVID. But this is where we're talking about some of the things that don't get spoken about, some of the things that are are out there and we're trying to gloss over it, you know, so to speak. But again, there was already a deficiency. COVID-19 widened that. And now we have to figure out what are we going to do to try to be able to catch people back up here. So that receipt right there resonated with me quite a bit there. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. yep. And that being on cold part, this is where we can step in and help, clo- help, help try and close that gap. And receipt number three, I'm just going to pile on for just a second about that COVID because... I think this is going to be one of those long term impacts on educational outcome for our people and our ability to create generational wealth at the end of the day. And according to a study by the U.S. Department of Education, during the height of the pandemic, 43 percent of elementary schools, elementary school students and 48 percent of middle school students in the survey remained fully remote during the pandemic, during the entire pandemic. And the survey found large differences by race. You know, 60% of Asians, 58% of Blacks, 56% of Hispanic fourth graders were learning entirely remotely during the pandemic, while just 27% of white students were. This this is a resource Mm -hmm. issue. I mean, I can tell you, my school spent a ton of money to get those kids back in school. Not Mm -hmm. everybody has those resources to be able to do that. And Mm -hmm. we're already seeing the impact, the difference between the students at my school and the students that, you know, that were other schools just in terms of their learning, their their mental health, all of these things. Socialization. Socialization, all of, things. All of these mm-hmm. things. So I live it every day. And conversely, half of white fourth graders were learning full time during, during the pandemic and in person during that time, compared to just 15% of Asians, 28% of Black students, and 33% of Hispanic fourth graders. So that gap, that's been created now. If we don't close it, we're going to have a whole generation of kids who are going to be even further behind academically, socially, emotionally, and from a wealth standpoint.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I could could jump in a minute also, even when the white kids were learning at home, Often there was someone making sure that they really were online and getting, I think what happened with a lot of our kids is there because mom had to go to work because if she didn't go to work, there was Mm -hmm. no, food, and she wasn't one of, she wasn't one of those working home people. She was one of those service people at Kroger. You know, mm-hmm. who, who were at work every day and if she didn't go, then, you know, she didn't get any pay. So unfortunately, a lot of our kids had no supervision at home, making sure that they were online getting a lesson. So it wasn't just the remote learning. It mm-hmm. was they were just remote. Yeah. Teaching themselves, teaching so was themselves, just remote, not teaching yep. anything. Uh-huh. Not- uh-huh. Yeah,
1: no, no, that's that's important. And look, the final receipt, you know, we have receipt number four for us. And KP and I, I just bring your points home with one more receipt, you know, here as we talked about some of these things earlier. This one comes from the Center of Education uh, Statistics. And in their study on black students in in public education, they found nearly one third of black students lived in poverty. That's 32 percent compared with uh, just 10 percent of white students. I mean, that's a huge delta, you know, right there. The percentage of black students who lived in households where the uh, highest level of education attained by either parent was a bachelor's or higher degree was 27 percent compared with 69 percent of Asian students and 53 percent of white students. 64% of Black students have parents whose education level is less than high school. 45% live in mother-only households. 35% live in father-only households. Of the 50.7 million students enrolled in public elementary and uh, secondary schools, 7.7 million were Black. Only 7% of Black students attended low poverty schools, compared to 39% Asian and 31% white students. I still got some more, okay? So y'all hang in there with me, okay? Mm -hmm. 45% of Black students were enrolled in public schools that were predominantly Black. And it gets no better as an employee in public schools where only 7% of public school teachers and 11% of public school principals were Black. If that right there doesn't bring that home for you and tell you why this is so important why we had to have Dr Gene Harris on here why we're talking about getting on code this gives you everything that you need to know you are not crazy the receipts do not live Keith and I didn't make these up and look we picked out four receipts there's a there's four million other receipts <laughs> you know <laughs> out there so to speak right but this is huge this is stuff that you cannot you know make up. This is this is this is it. And Dr. Jean Harris, I know you probably have a comment, you know, here because this is what you have dedicated your life's work to.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it. I just want to say it again. It doesn't have to stay this way, mm-hmm. and, and we can be involved in making sure that it doesn't remain that way in so many ways. I'll I'll just point out a couple of them. It, you know, as parents. We need to be concerned about who our school leaders are, and mm-hmm. I'm not just talking about at the superintendent level. But quite often, communities have the opportunity to have to provide feedback on the kind of people that they believe should be leading. Them. And so, we need to you know, we need to not stay home and say, "Oh, it doesn't matter." You know, every time you do that, every time you do that, these statistics get more entrenched every every time. The yeah. other thing is Dr. Part- Dr. Hurst, I just want to say one thing real quick. Um, is like that advocacy
1: that you talk about, like because mm-hmm. we remember, you know, the 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 mother that or the father that would show up at the events at school, that would come in for the parent teacher conferences, that would be active, you know, those kids benefited. You know, Every from time. it, like we Every absolutely time. look at that. So, again, I know you're giving us just some amazing things. here, And I just want to, like, make sure that everyone understands these are some of these secrets, you know, <laughs> here to like really, really being able to to change, you know, yes. a system that doesn't have to be this way. So I, I know I, I broke in there because it just reminded me, you know, so much, you know, there of, as we're talking about how to be active, how to be proactive, how to instigate change you know, so to speak. So, so again, if you could, if you could just continue, you know, maybe just giving us, you you talked about being active there. Maybe you could give us a couple of more secrets, you Mm -hmm. know, there on how, you know, how, how parents, you know, how Mm -hmm. individuals, so to speak as yourself can stay active, you know, and and influence the public school system.
3: Absolutely. And it's, these are no, I mean, you know, I love the name of your show, but these really aren't secret, and and people ought to know to do. And they're mm-hmm. and they're not new, but we've got to stay involved with our kids. I loved your summary about uh, advocacy because it's really advocacy across the board. Whether you are at the local school level, or if you are in front of the state legislature, or wherever it is, wherever you see a wrong, get involved to right it, mm-hmm. and you you can do that, and, and don't be afraid to do that.
1: Yeah, no, that that's that's extremely helpful. I mean, I just. we always talk about how busy we are at work, how busy we are and this but it really doesn't take that much time to help somebody else out, right? It really doesn't take that much time to vote. It really doesn't take that much time to be active and to volunteer, you know, your time. So I appreciate that. Yeah, or write a legislator or whatever the case may be. That's right. And what two or three pieces of
2: advice would you give to like our educational leaders or our corporate leaders, you know, in, in terms of doing more to really use their power and privilege to to help affect change within the public education system. If you're staying in front of the president or the governor or or whoever, what would you tell them they need to do?
1: Mm hmm.
3: instead of being creative enough to say, this is what we're gonna do to change the world. But we have to look for ways, even in our churches, in our schools, to work with families who are struggling because the where the change is gonna happen is at the individual family level. Yes, we've gotta have the right principals, right teachers and all of that. But if our kids aren't going to school rightly prepared, Having learned their ABCs before they get to school, having seen a book, having known that a book opens from uh, left to right, you know, all of those things before they get to school, we send our kids behind. So there's some things that we in our community can do. And there are all kinds of programs out there. There's a, a program in Columbus where kids can get a free book every month. You just have to sign up for it from the time they're babies, they can get a free book every month. So you don't have to be like I was running around, finding books that were the right books for my son to read and making sure they they come to your house. And then what you have to do is when they come to your house, open them up and read them to your kid and spend some time. I know that our families are stressed and all of that, but I'm telling you, I think the real secret to changing the lives of our children really come from their families. You know, I told you that, you know, my whole basic foundation um, for moving up the, the the corporate ladder and success and all that came from home. Mm-hmm. It didn't come from Notre Dame or I mean, they gave me they gave me the credentials to be able to do what I have done. But all the values and the work and the that all came from home. I'm not blaming our families for the total condition that we are in right now, but I am saying that we have to be part of the solution. We Mm -hmm. absolutely have to be a part of the solution. We can't wait for somebody else to raise our kids. We can't wait for somebody else to, you know, really find out what's happening. And we can't wait till our kids are 12 to find out that they've got an issue. We've got to pull our kids off the streets. Why are we seeing more and more of our own children involved with guns mm-hmm. and having problems with guns and and finding guns at home and shooting each? I mean, the, I'm telling you real stories that are really happening in Columbus, Ohio and shooting themselves. I mean, shooting each other with a gun as a little person, a six year old with a gun that they found at the house. Mm. I can't blame that on anybody else. And then there's all that trauma that comes with it. There's trauma that comes as a result of that. Mm-hmm. That I can't I as an educator can't solve at school, what my job was, was to find the best teachers, the best principals, the best resources. We built brand new buildings while I was superintendent. We built over 40 new, we hadn't had a new building in Columbus City for 25 or 30 years when I became superintendent. We built and renovated over 45 new buildings in the, so my job is to do all that but there's a job for you to do also. My job was to lobby in front of the legislature and I did. I was there. Mm-hmm. You know, my job was to speak truth to power to to these folks in the community who said a 90% graduation rate was crazy and quit telling these kids they can go to college. My mm-hmm. job was to do that. Your job was to make sure that your child is where they need to be. They're not in harm's way and that they are ready to come to school. Dr. Harris,
1: girl, oh my God, this has just been so powerful for me, right? I am just so very grateful that you were able to just bless the mic for us today and just drop gym after gym after gym and just doing it so flawlessly, right? (laughs) Like, because this is like, this wasn't make believe for you. This is what you do. This is what you've done. I felt like I was sitting over here talking to my auntie, right? And You you didn't inspire me to kind of even do more. You know, so I appreciate that. Secrets Village, again, I told you, we just, we're not playing in season six. Dr. Harris, we sincerely appreciate you for just being with us today and for being part of the Secrets Village.
3: Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. You all inspire me.
2: Yeah, that's great. And Dr. Harris, I want to extend my thanks as well because you you were doing that thing, as we say. You were doing that thing. And you can find more resources on Secrets the secrets, the receipts, and more about Dr. Harris by going to our website, secrets.com, uh, look in the show notes for the podcast. So there'll be all the information in there to help you kind of explore this topic a little further.
1: Hey, so Dr. Harris, you are officially, as I said before, in the Secrets Village, okay? So we're going to be counting on you, you know, to uh, be able to come back and talk to us again. And our Secrets Village just continues to grow because of you, our listeners. Without you all, we would not have secrets. We're trying to blow it up in 2023 so you can help us out by telling five friends to listen. This is like friends helping friends, okay? Tell five friends to listen. Join our LinkedIn group and write a review on Apple or Spotify. Also get that gear. I got on some right now, you know? Okay. So go and get some of that 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 Secrets gear.
2: Absolutely. And if you've been on our website, we have that coin meter and it's spinning and it keeps spinning every day. And as you know, over the last three years that we've been doing Secrets, we have helped our clients get over $8 million in total compensation increases through our mentorship and coaching. And so we want to get it to 50 Because we need to create some generational wealth for our people at the end of the day. So if you've been putting off coaching, stop it. It's time to invest in yourself. And even if you're trying to just negotiate your salary, trying to exit, you know, want to revise Mm -hmm. your resume, just book an hour with us. We are happy to help you get ahead. And, and navigate your way through this system.
1: You will not regret it. Right. <laughs> okay. So, look again, we want to thank Dr. Gene Harris once again for being uh, with us today. One thing that KP and I truly, that KP and I are truly educated on is how to mix up these little cocktails. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, we're going to fill up these cups again and get right back at it. So, Secrets Village, we really, really appreciate you. Thanks for tuning in to Secrets. And remember, when we share, you transform. Peace. Thanks, everybody.
0: Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed yet another episode of Secrets. If you are motivated and excited about being a part of the Secrets Village after listening to Keith and Ricky, please show these brothers some love by spreading the word to people that you know need this knowledge. Until next time, cheers!